Welcome to the 84th installment of Ear to the Ground, the Land Stewardship Project's audio podcast on family farming, sustainable agriculture, local food systems, and local democracy. I'm Brian DeVore, editor of the Land Stewardship Letter. In episode 83 of Ear to the Ground, we described a new initiative that is pursuing ways of utilizing local foods and biomass markets to promote environmentally friendly farming systems in a watershed in western Minnesota. It's hoped that the so-called Chippewa 10% Project will serve as a national model for utilizing market-based working lands conservation in rural watersheds. This initiative is co-coordinated by the Land Stewardship Project and the Chippewa Watershed Project. In this episode, we hear from a few of the people who participated in a recent Chippewa 10% Field Day, which was held on the Don and Helen Burheim farm near Benson, Minnesota. First, I talked to Abdullah Jaradat, who is the research leader of the USDA's North Central Soil Conservation Research Lab. The agronomist talked about some trends he's seen nationally in terms of soil erosion and row crop production, and what that may mean in terms of a new approach to farming the land. Uh, erosion is declining simply because farmers are adopting better management practices. They are not using more bold plows. They are uh, plowing less and less. Uh, some of them are even uh, using no tillage uh, to grow their, their crops. And this helps a great deal in reducing uh, erosion. However, because of the drive uh, for higher yields, uh, uh, farmers are using more fertilizers and consequently more uh, uh, pesticides, herbicides, etc. And the concern is uh, uh, whether this uh, uh, good, uh, the trend of, of uh, lower and lower uh, erosion, is it uh, translating into less runoff and less contamination uh, of uh, water courses by uh, runoff of pesticides and herbicides that's a big question i'm not sure if that's the case simply because we are seeing mm, uh, the uh, impact down at the uh, gulf with the uh, dead zone it's unfortunately increasing and that says to us that these uh, chemicals are being uh, carried away from the land all the way down to the gulf uh, region I think another interesting map you showed us was showing that in, if you look at corn production, the l amount of land area that it covers is actually go has gone down over the years, it's, it, but it's concentrated more. It's going down over the years, and the maps during, uh, showing the difference between land area per county during the 20th century, in fact, showed that uh, the east uh, eastern part of the United States and uh, to some extent the south and mid uh, southern southern part uh, the uh, corn is decreasing but it's uh, creeping towards more and more towards the upper midwest and even uh, northern great plains in uh, south dakota um, this is a very uh, interesting trend we have to pay more attention to its impact on the land, the water resources, and the uh, uh, diversity of the cropping systems. Uh, more corn concentrate means, means less other crops and less diversity on the, on the farm. Yeah, I would think it would put a significant uh, amount of pressure on those acres that are getting more and more of that production and, and more pressure to have more yields per acre there. That's correct, and more yield means the farmers have to 
plant more plants per unit area and feed these plants more so that they can produce the higher yield and that translates into more nutrients. We know that crops are not, especially corn, is not an efficient uh, user of nitrogen and uh, more and more nitrogen is being lost through the uh, water systems, uh, watersheds all the way down to the Gulf. The major changes in fact we better be prepared for them uh, before they force us to adopt uh, these changes. We know that the, the land use issues are the major issues which will dictate what crops, where and how uh, they will be produced. With the uh, shrinking land resources, and uh, we shouldn't uh, forget this fact that we are losing land uh, by the minute, uh, not necessarily by the day, uh, every day because of different reasons. And our option is to make sure that we allocate land use for whatever uh, crops or and or other uh, ecosystem services in the best possible manner so that we can utilize these lands in the best uh, manner uh, where the environment uh, is protected and other services other than crop production are being uh, attained. Yeah, and you talked a little bit about that the public maybe needs to realize that we need to start paying for some of those services that are being provided. That's very true and I, uh, I am not hesitant to say that we better uh, be prepared to pay for them right now and enjoy the other, uh, these other uh, ecosystem services. Uh, otherwise, we may end up paying more price for the negative impact if we do not do so. Next, I chatted with Paul Weimer, a scientist for the Chippewa Watershed Project, about the relationship between perennial plant cover and improved water quality in a rural watershed. Yeah, um, back in 2007, uh, a farmer came to my office, and, and he was really interested. Actually, he was interested in biomass, but uh, his question to me was, you know, Paul, what would it take to get clean water in our watershed? You know, there's a lot of talk about, you know, the need for land use change and so forth, but what's it going to take? What kind of acres are we talking about when, when you say, you know, clean water? And that, that was his challenge to me, to come up with some information. So I went back. And I looked at our 12 years of data that we have on our water quality monitoring sites on the Chippewa River. We have six tributaries that we've been monitoring. Each of those tributaries has different water quality um, fingerprint coming in, I, I guess is how I see it. And each, each of those different tributaries has a different makeup of, of land uses as well. And so we were able to, from using that water quality data and the land use uh, that's actually on the land, uh, construct uh, a basic understanding of what it would take, what what is the impact of land use on water quality in the Chippewa watershed. Right, so I, I looked at that relationship of the different land uses on varying water quali quality levels and found that the higher the watershed's portion of perennial land uses, the higher its water quality is. You know, that's a generalization. Uh, other factors like soils and hydrological pathways also influence this relationship. And you know, we did construct a trend line, and we, but we do see values above and below. Some, some watersheds seem to perform better than others. Like I said, soils and hydrological pathways influence them. But uh, whatever the case, pretty much across the board is a rule of thumb. Uh, we do see that as the acres of pasture, hayland, you know, grasslands, woodlands, wetlands, lakes in combination, as they increase, 
And in whatever combination they do increase, we do see that there's an improvement in water quality. And uh, when it came to the two nutrients that I was looking at, nitrogen and sediment, we have pretty clear standards or or uh, levels that we're trying to, goals, I suppose, that we're trying to achieve. Right. So we, when we looked at the 12 years of data that we had and compared them to those different land use covers that we had, uh, we were able to construct a trend line of that data. And that allowed us to estimate specific levels of perennial land use that should be necessary to achieve specific levels of, of nutrients in the water. So for the Chippewa River, we had a, the target of 50 eight parts per million uh, for suspended sediment. And when we looked down that trend line of our, our of our data from the last 12 years, it showed that we would need to have about 34% of the land use in perennial cover for the watershed. Interestingly, we also had a goal of one part per million for nitrogen. That too fell right about on that 34% level. And so that gave us a target for what we needed in the watershed for perennial land uses. Uh, given the current level of our perennial land use cover is about 24%, that means that if we were to increase that by 10%, we would hopefully have achieved uh, the water quality goals that we have for our watershed. 10% in the scheme of things maybe doesn't sound like a lot. 10% in a watershed is a lot of land. So you kind of figured out, well, to actually attain that, we may not, the things we've been using in the past may not work. Yeah, that's right. You know, 10% of the Chippewa watershed is 130,000 acres, and that's a lot of land. And when we look at our conventional conservation practices, whether that's, you know, easements from the government or uh, cost share to, to support changes, uh, 130,000 acres adds up really quickly to a lot more money than we could possibly expect to get for our watershed, much less the state of Minnesota. And so we quickly realized that we couldn't follow the standard model that's been practiced for conservation. Um, what we quickly realized was that the only way that this kind of change can occur is if we can find profitable perennial land uses, you know, allow, allow for the landowners to make private profit off it, while at the same time uh, improving our water quality. One option for getting more perennial plants like grass on farmland is to provide markets for them through the generation of biomass energy. The University of Minnesota Morris has constructed a gasifier it hopes will eventually provide the majority of the western Minnesota schools energy needs. It's hoped that prairie grass grown on area farms like those found in the Chippewa watershed will be one source for that energy. I talked to Jim Barber, a staff scientist with the biomass gasification project at the university, about what a locally based prairie grass biomass energy system might look like. Yeah, biomass is local, not just in the sense of being available locally, but in that it needs to be used locally. It's not uh, sustainable and it's not economical to try to move it long distances. Uh, fossil fuels like petroleum, coal can be hauled a long distance because they're very dense in energy content. Biomass is not. By the time you have moved it any significant distance, you've used enough uh, fuel to, to, equip, to equal the biomass fuel content. So it's not a winning proposition to move it very far. To borrow a, uh, an analogy, uh, if uh, a biomass, a bale of corn stover, say, uh, sitting on my lot in is worth a lot to me as fuel, but what's it worth to uh, someone in Chicago? Uh, nothing, because it wouldn't make any sense to haul it there. It would cost more than it's worth just in fuel. So biomass is local, both uh, in terms of it's available locally, but also because its, uh, its value is in the local community. Uh, that has some real advantages, though, because it means that if the biomass is being produced locally and used locally, 
and processed locally too. It means that the money, all of those changes of money stay in the community and can uh, help these our small communities out here in western Minnesota in particular. Many of them are losing their economic viability, we're losing population, but to be able to keep our energy money here in the region uh, would be a big help in rebuilding our communities, rebuilding our economy here. Has anybody come up with kind of a rule of thumb of, say for example, prairie grass or even uh, hay, how, f- how far you can haul it before it's not economically viable anymore for biomass reasons? I suppose it depends to some extent on exactly how you're using it, but uh, in a s- small to mid-scale uh, community heat and power operation, it probably doesn't make much sense to haul it more than about 20 miles. Certainly at uh, 50 miles, you're getting on the edge of being reasonable. What we might see is many communities having either a an institution or an industry using uh, biomass power or maybe a community utility that's using biomass, just as these communities out here have a grain elevator where the farmers bring their grain at harvest. They could also have a processor aggregator who takes uh, takes crop residues or grass uh, harvested from grasslands and processing it and uh, delivering it to the local users. It, it's, the very, it's that really uh, tight-knit, integrated community uh, infrastructure that we need here. And it's what we don't have. It's one of the biggest barriers to the use of biomass fuels right now is simply there isn't the infrastructure to handle it. For more information on the Chippewa 10% Project, see www.chippewa10.org. That's Chippewa, the number 10, dot O-R-G. If you have comments or suggestions about this podcast, contact Brian DeVore at bdevore at landstewardshipproject.org, or you can call 612-722-6377. Thanks to Laura Borgendale, Western Minnesota musician, for Ear to the Ground's theme music. And a special thank you to all of Land Stewardship Project's members who make initiatives such as this podcast possible. If you're not a member, visit landstewardshipproject.org to learn how you can support LSP. Thanks for listening.